To ship, of course. Build Engineering, DevOps, Release Management, and everything between. It's time for the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Engine on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me? Well, this is Yusuf, uh, at Build Scientist on Twitter, and at BuildScientist.com. This is Sasha, Sasha underscore D at Twitter, BradyRedhead.com. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing pretty good. Oh, but it's good. snowing. It's snowing, and it won't melt. <laughs> I'm having problems with that. It, it's been very windy in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. It was sleeting this morning when I went to the coffee shop. It's overcast in San Diego, so... Yeah. All right. Well, tonight we're going to take a closer look uh, at the topic of questions. Uh, We ask and answer them all day long, so it may seem like we're all experts at doing so, but all too often we jump to conclusions when answering questions and don't have a full understanding of what we're actually being asked. And on the flip side, are there better ways we could all be uh, asking our questions? So we'll take a look at that after News and Views, uh, as we always do. So uh, first up on News and Views tonight, we have a new build system. We looked a couple episodes ago at Tough. Seth Ford is that. But uh, tonight we have a new system called Ninja, which is uh, another uh, native build system. It's, it's based on Make in certain ways. Kind of an interesting thing about it is that it uses higher level build systems to generate the Ninja files. And so you can use actual standard Make. You can use uh, CMake, and also apparently it can be used to build Chrome and V8 and WebKit, apparently. Looks like this is a used by uh, the Google folks. to They're looking at it to um, make more performant Chrome builds. Did you guys see the links to this? I did. Um, yeah. I don't really know too much about binary building things. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting that there's been a renewed interest in, in the space, and you see kind of uh, people are trying to build make-like systems, but they're taking different approaches. Um, one of the, I think, most interesting things about Ninja is that it does it does have this kind of, like, similar to CMake, where you actually take a higher-level output and then use a compiler to compile, like, your make files. It's, it's kind of weird. We kind of got away from that, if anybody remembers iMake for compiling X-Windows. We, we kind of got away from that, but uh, it looks like we're, we're doing that again. It's got some interesting extra features. It looks like it adds some functionality that you can actually build with Make, but it has it inherently inside of Ninja. So we'll add it in the show notes. But uh, I mean, to me, I mean, I, I probably need to dig into this, but it just looks like kind of a wrapper around, or you, know, you could use it as a wrapper around other, other build tools, but... Yeah, no, so it's interesting. I was reading the kind of intro, and it was saying that you would never really want to... Like, you can, you know, ninja files are human-readable, so you can write them yourself, but you would never want to do that. I I think it's one of those things where you're supposed to be able to take legacy build systems and then run them through the system that is a little smarter. So the, the standard measure of all of these build systems is the null build, right? So, right? so if you type make, how long does it take to figure out nothing changed? And I think they did it, there's some information in here, and they did it on the Chrome tree, and make takes the standard two minutes or whatever, and, and Ninja does it in 10 seconds or something like that. Interestingly enough, it works on Unix-like systems, so they're, they're uh, still trying to get it working on Windows. There's preliminary support for it, but it uh, looks like it's solid on Linux and Mac OS and free so yeah, if you're if you're uh, doing binary native builds, take a look at uh, take a look at Ninja. It looks like uh, there was a link this week to somebody had found the original Photoshop 1.0 source code. Put a link in the show notes. There's an interesting write up on actually compiling it from source. Computer History Museum, it looks like, actually got the source code. Adobe released it. There's a couple floppies of the source code. The write-up's pretty long, but it actually has some interesting information. I didn't know that the original Photoshop was in Pascal. Yeah, that, that kind of caught me off guard, too. It's like, what? I mean... Yeah, yeah, no, and it, it, it's funny. The, the picture up top of the article has the original Mac like a screenshot, and yeah. I, I, it, I was just looking at it going, I remember, I remember that. It's like, <laughs> from my... From my past uh, was kind of fun to look at but and then he, he writes up like apparently the the floppies had some issues and so they were had to kind of try to reconstruct things well, um, one of the interesting things that I found was apparently um, there, there's some sort of post uh, processing or post compilation process where they actually wire up the code to um, the GUI using some sort of resource editor and that kind of reminds me of some of the uh, like Android development I mean so a lot, a lot of uh, not just Android but you know a lot of the um, um, IDEs or, or development environments where they'll auto generate either you know, resources or, or 
um, code for GUIs that you kind of develop like with a with a not a WYSIWYG tool but kind of more yeah I guess like a like a WYSIWYG tool where you have like window elements and buttons and stuff like that. So oh yeah, NFC yeah. used to be like that. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because you look back at a lot of the historical GUIs like you know Windows 3.1 and it's yep. just interesting how they were trying to cobble all of that together to run on machines that had like 16 megahertz processors, right? And so there there is a lot of those hacks where you get the library from Apple or you get the library from Microsoft and you're linking against like all hand-tuned assembler. Uh, yeah. yeah. As an interesting note, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe look for these in the future. The, the Computer History Museum actually has long history of doing projects like this where they'll find old hardware and old programs. Uh, they were actually restoring a PDP-11, which I think they got running. And the awesome thing is the people that are doing it now are like all retired, but they're the people that worked on it back a deck in the day. And it's like they come to the computer history museums in the afternoons and they like work on a PDP-11 that's 40 years old and that's wow. like their yeah so, so the computer history museum is actually really cool uh, if you're in the Bay Area you should definitely take a tour of it uh, but they do a lot of projects like like that where, where they get old source code or they have like the the first CDs that Netscape shipped to the Netscape 1.0 on stuff like that they have that kind of stuff it's definitely a great tour if you haven't done it next up we have just a little kind of interesting thing I saw this on Twitter and I thought I'd po- post it for uh, listeners to look at. We'll post a link in the show notes. But it basically shows how a lot of us, when we're reading docs on the web, will cut and paste here, clone this GitHub repository, or run these sets of commands. There's a little hack here uh, that somebody posted using CSS where you can actually hide commands. And apparently browsers don't scrub the stuff out that's not visible. So page that we'll link to, uh, you can actually cut and paste it. You should view the source first, but I think it clears your screen and it shows you the first line of Etsy password or something like that when it looks like you're going to just be cloning a GitHub repository. So you should definitely just think about that. Looks like uh, there's some comments and suggestions in the link on how to mitigate the attack, but I certainly, we've all been there cutting and pasting stuff, especially like from Stack Overflow and stuff like that, so. Yeah, stuff, I mean, Counter actually reminds me of um, a lot of the uh, installers for, you know, where you do like a curl or a wget and pipe it to, to bash a shell to run a shell script that you've just downloaded. And yeah, that's of, a horrible idea. Yeah. What like, could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and last up tonight, it uh, looks like uh, the IETF is coming up with a standard for SSH key management. The link, the article uh, in the show notes. Just wanted to point it out. We uh, predicted this year that SSH key management would be a big deal. It looks like they're trying to come up with a, a standard for dealing with uh, keys and key management. We all, you know, generate keys all the time, and, and it looks like it's it's now a management problem managing all those keys. Did you guys see this this uh, this article? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've already talked about how boring I think security is, so I don't know that I actually care that much. Probably shouldn't say that out loud. I'll never get another job, but it's true. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you say that. I think, in some sense, that is a very like real attitude. A lot of people like security is not interesting, but it's one of those things you know. We see this like security and usability as a spectrum, and key management is one of those things that I think we like don't think about until it really bites us. And I don't know that we've seen a big large scale attack yet, but it's nice to see that that they're at least starting to think about this problem. I mean, I remember the big kind of shift from our shell to SSH, and so now it's like, well, we have SSH and, and everybody gets you should be using SSH. So now the attack surface is how can we get you to accept key you shouldn't actually be accepting. Uh, and I, it's funny, actually, th- this turns out to be a, a real-world problem. I actually, uh, I, one of the machines I work on has a host name, and I was at a coffee shop, so I SSH to the host name, and I was figuring DNS would do the normal thing it does at home, where it just takes me to my machine. And it turns out that the coffee shop has a server there with the same name, and the SSH like actually blew up and said something funky is happening. And I thought I was under attack, but then I realized, no, it's just a machine the coffee shop had. Uh, but So this stuff really comes up, and had I just ignored that, it might have been kind of weird for a while. Like, why, why, why can't I get into this machine? So, anyway, uh, next up, questions, asking them, answering them. We're going to talk about it and how to uh, level up on both sides of that equation. All right, welcome back to the Ship Show. So Puppet Labs recently released their 2013 State of DevOps infographic. We'll link to it in the show notes. Down near at the end of the graphic, something caught my attention, and it said, in response to the question, what skills do respondents look for when hiring for DevOps roles, 84% said they wanted coding and scripting abilities, and the next biggest segments, with 60%, was people skills. 
So in that vein, we wanted to talk a little bit tonight about DevOps culture and take a closer look at how development operations communicate when asking and answering questions. Now, Sasha and Yusuf, this was a topic you were bringing up in slightly different contexts, as I remember. And it's one of those things that's extremely easy to sort of assume that everyone knows how to do. And yet there are different forms, you know, open source community versus the workplace, for instance, where it comes up and where it's coming up constantly. So, Sasha, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the issues that uh, you see people running into uh, on this topic of sort of asking and answering questions? Sure. Well, so one of the things that I see a lot and that kind of bugs me is a lot of times someone will pop into a forum or uh, an IRC channel and ask a question and then everybody will jump on his head and say well that's stupid why are you doing it like that and the guy's like dude you don't know anything about my life or what dude, I have to do. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't understand the constraints that I'm operating under and he may know perfectly well that it's a horrible thing that he has to do but sometimes you have to do that crap. And I see it a lot, and I've had it happen to me, and I see it, um, I've waded into the fray even a few times when I see it happening to other people, because I'm like, you know, if you can't say something useful, why do you have to say anything at all? Or even after you said once, why are you doing it like that? That seems like an inefficient way to do it. And the person says, I have reasons, whatever those are. At that point, you just need to shut up and let them figure things out. And if you don't have anything, any help to offer, then, then don't offer anything. Right. So that's one side of it, right? And then right. the other side of it, of course, is the asking, which we often see a lot as operations and engineers. So that's actually a really, really good point. So you, you were sort of talking about how knowing like how, how to not be rude and how to respond when someone asks for help. But there's also, you brought up to like how to ask for help and sort of what to do before you ask for help. So I thought we'd be good to kind of like talk about both sides of it. But let's, let's look at the how to ask for help a little more in depth because I think this is something especially that in our support roles doing the, you were doing developer tools on the developer tool team and me as a consultant, Yusuf in a support role doing build and release engineering. I mean, we get asked questions a lot. And so it might be interesting, like what would we hope that people have done what anecdotes do we have about people asking us questions? And so do you have any kind of suggestions on, on that in terms of where to start before you even get to the point of that IRC channel that is people telling you you're stupid? Right. Well, and I kind of divide the world up into two kinds of people, and they're not ones and zeros, but they kind of are. And they're the people who can help themselves and the people who will never be able to help themselves. And unfortunately, there are a few of those folks out there still. Um, the kind who come to you and say things like, my Jenkins job didn't work yesterday. Well, have you tried it today? Well, no. Or they come to you and say things like, is the internet down? And you want to say, th or, you know, is the dev server down, right? That's my favorite. Right. Is the dev server down? And I'm generally inclined to say things like, no, and then go back to what I was doing because that sort of thing, it's never helpful. But on the other hand, there is there are other folks who actually know how to help themselves before they come to you and say, my app isn't working, and I've tried these three things, and I tried this thing that happened last time that I wasn't sure would work, and it didn't, and I don't really know what to do now. Well, so it's funny. Uh, you, uh, I was ran actually very randomly watching one of Adam Jacobs' Choose Your Own Adventure talks, and I think it was the last one he gave. And he was actually, he brought up, uh, he, was, he was talking about the no ass rule uh, and how not to be an ass at work. And he was bringing up, type, you know, the technical definition of and the types of people. And one of them, he said, was a, a social loafer. And he was like people that sort of coast. And, and it sounds like you're sort of describing that in terms of people that, for whatever reason, either it's kind of in their makeup or culturally, they picked it up at some culture where they used to work. It was easier to go and ask the question and bug someone else as opposed to learning the problem-solving skills. And in fact, actually, it was funny, back when I was doing full-time work before I was a consultant, that was actually something of a culture that I really emphasized hugely. And, and it must have been because they had some really bad experiences, but they emphasized problem-solving skills. And I thought that was, that was very, that focus was very interesting. It sounds like you're talking about that where, where it's like, is the internet down? Well, there's like eight ways to check that. Right. And well, you, is my dev you, server down? Just because, just because you can't, your app doesn't work the way you think it should doesn't make the dev server down. Right. And part of that that I think is surprising and in my sort of travels to this space, I am surprised at how many ops engineers, how many build engineers don't have basic problem solving skills. And what I mean by that is it's like, well, X doesn't work. Okay, did you 
did you try changing one thing and retrying it? Or did you investigate it from the slightly different angle, right? I mean, it's kind of like, it doesn't work. Answer up. I'm going to go ask Bob did who knows about it. Did you restart it? Right, right. Or one of the, the ones you sort of brought up is, if there was a problem yesterday, did you try today? Is it still a problem? Is it slightly different? That That's one of my biggest beefs, actually, because a lot of times in dev environments, you have instabilities in the infrastructure. And if something didn't work yesterday, generally before asking for help 24 hours later, you should at least make sure it's still broken. Yeah, yeah. So well, I, I think I think a lot of, you know, to, to touch on sort of the social loafers thing, I think, you know, and, and lack of problem-solving skills, one of the things that I'm depending on who it is that I'm um, working with and, and helping them um, answer a question uh, or asking for help is the idea of kind of isolating where or what the problem is. So is it... Is it a layer three issue? You know, is it a, is it a network issue? Is it a layer seven, you know, issue? Or, or you know, again, kind of getting to that least common denominator and saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure the internet is is, is up and running. I'm pretty sure that I haven't run out of this space. That's why my Jenkins build, or that's not the reason why my Jenkins build is is failing. So, l little things like that, and I think that there are ways of potentially uh, working with some of these social loafers to kind of get them to at least maybe go down a list of things. Um, so that they can kind of begin to learn. You work with solving. attacks in layers. I mean, most of the people I know that I work with, hardcore ops folks aside, don't talk in layers and wouldn't know what one was if you said it. Well, sure. Well, no, so you're, you're, so to, to clarify, uh, Yusuf, you're talking about the OSI layer yeah, no, 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 stack, and, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm talking about the OSI stack, but, but even even just, okay, so layers aside, even taking taking apart a problem and saying, okay, Let's localize or isolate where where the issue is. is. Does it look like it's this is happening because uh, the internet is down, or am I running out of this space? Or yeah. Well, so Yusuf, I actually think that's a really good point. And in our interview with Damon a couple episodes ago, he sort of brought this this general concept up that everyone sort sort of needs to kind of level up to make kind of DevOps work. And I don't know everything there is to know about networking. I, you know, in fact, there's like. What I don't know about networking could fill a book, but... Yeah, but um, Google does. Well, no, but here's the thing. I think a lot of people, or a lot of times, it's very easy to be like, oh, that is the network stack. I don't have to know about it. Now, I don't know about uh, a lot of network stuff, but I know how to isolate, oh, it's in that layer. It's it's The network is down, right? The system is down. Or it's, oh, that application, it's at, it's at the kind of application layers. So I, I think it, Yusuf makes a really good point that being able to sort of, and this goes back to sort of the problem-solving standpoint, knowing enough to at least isolate which layer in the stack are you. Is it the OpenStack implementation you're trying to, to work on that's broken, right? And being able to do that as opposed to, well, the machine, I can't SSH to it. It just, there's nothing there. Yeah, I think that that's... actually has been a frustration. I mean, where I was at the last place with the OpenStack collection, every time something didn't work for a dev team, for a couple of them, it was OpenStack is broken. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it actually, it wasn't always OpenStack necessarily that was broken. Despite how often I talk trash about OpenStack, it wasn't broken every day. Yeah. Well, you know, and though, uh, going back to sort of like how do you debug these problems, I, I've been in the environment, too, where it's also a good... It, I kept getting a lot of questions in the support role of, like, this stuff is broken, it doesn't work. And, you know, it was across the entire organization. So it was people that were kind of very senior and knew all of the stack and had that kind of stuff. And what I realized was that there wasn't good kind of configuration management and change management within the organization. So things were changing, which made that kind of analysis take, take a long time. And so a lot of times you can actually, if you kind of see a common denominator of all sorts of, of questions and people are having trouble resolving it on their own, that can also be an indication of like an organizational issue that you sort of need to look at. I mean, do you not have configuration management in place or, or you know, things like that? Yeah, sure, I, I, and if the infrastructure is unstable often enough, people will stop bothering to troubleshoot the problem because the infrastructure is unstable often enough that it becomes the infrastructure owner's responsibility to prove that it's not broken right. or uh, or anybody does anything. So that's a, we could probably talk the whole show about that particular issue. Right. I, I, right. I wanted to touch on the Google thing. I know Sasha mentioned Google. So whether it's Google or Stack Overflow, I, I think obviously they're both very good resources, but I think it really depends on what you're looking for. I mean, oftentimes I'll have folks come and ask me about more sort of design or architecture-related questions. And yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that's out there, but whether it's design architecture issues or related issues, sometimes things like Stack Overflow or other other resources, you're going to have 
a hundred million different opinions about it. And, and so I, I think it really depends, you know, telling somebody go Google it, well, it depends on the type of question that they're asking. Oh, so you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, and I didn't have time to argue, so that's cool, because now we can argue about it. I think unless there is actually just one answer, that you, people should still go Google things and then read the Internet to get an idea of what the issues are and how things are, how things are laid out, basically. Because if there is more than one opinion on something, generally that means that most of them are at least valid to be reading about, and there is no one right answer. And you're talking about best practices and things, not how do I solve my broken thing. Well, so I, I think that's actually a good, I, I was going to talk a little bit about this when we talk about like sort of how, what are good ways to, to answer questions. So we'll return to that in a sec because I think I, I have a, a good way to kind of bucket those two types of questions. One thing I actually did want to point out to listeners, I, there, there's a document that's been around just like forever um, and it looks like it was written back in, wow, 2004 by Eric yeah, Raymond. You were even alive back then. <laughs> uh, by Eric Raymond, and uh, he, uh, the document's called How to Ask Questions the Smart Way. Uh, I wanted to read an excerpt from it because it, was, it kind of hits on what we were talking about. It, it was talking, uh, let's see, the, the quote is, what hackers are unapologetically is hostile to people who seem to be unwilling to think or to do their own homework before asking questions. People like that are time sinks, they take without giving back, and they waste time we could have spent on other questions more interesting and another person more worthy of an answer. We call people like this losers. Now, that's really harsh. It is really and harsh. It's really harsh, and in fact, what I find interesting is that reading between the lines of that statement, there's this sort of like, they take without giving back, so there's sort of this like open source kind of ethos seeping into it. But I would recommend listeners... If you want to learn a lot of really good strategies for asking questions, especially in forums like you know mailing lists or IRC, where for better or worse you're going to be dealing with people that if you don't speak, you know, hackers and software engineers, that if you don't speak to them in the way that they think they need to be spoken to, they're going to just blow you off and call you an idiot. Um, what I would recommend is go put your sort of flame retardant suit on and go read this document because for better or worse it has been around a really long time and the list of techniques that he gives for asking questions is really really good it includes things like choosing your forum what information to include when you're trying to ask a question because we've all asked we've all seen the person come into the IRC or on a mailing list and say I have a problem with chef my recipe doesn't work my cookbook doesn't work and you're like, well, that's great. I can't. You've told me absolutely zero, and I can't help you. So even if you wanted to help them, and even if you, right, you, there's a lot of overhead to start that conversation. And so some of the suggestions that he gives in this document actually are really, really helpful about that. Uh, one of my favorite topics he does is don't post homework questions because you can always tell when somebody's doing that. It's like, can, can someone help me with counting the number of characters in this string? It's in C. Well, we get that I mean, sometimes actually in book discussion groups that I'm on, right? People will come in and ask, like, obvious homework questions about, about some books. Yeah, um, yeah. So I will say this. I was actually re – I hadn't read this document in a, in a while, you know, and Eric Raymond is one of those kind of opinionated old-school open-source people. So he doesn't mind calling you – a loser, as I just had in that quote. So it's a little harsh, but if you can get past that, a lot of the information in it is actually really, really good uh, and useful. I spent a lot of time in large enterprises, and I used to get so mad because IBM is like the world's biggest pain in the ass to get somebody to talk to you who knows anything besides reading off uh, a flowchart, right? And mm. by the time I call IBM, I have spent a week trying to figure out what in God's name is going on. And I've looked at everything under the sun, and I've read the entire internet, right? Finally, I get to the end of the internet, and there's IBM PMR land. It's kind of a fun game. So I used to get so mad, and then I worked with somebody who they made a PMR every single time they couldn't figure something out, right? Like What's a PMR? I, I can't even think of something uh, inane enough to tell you a, a story about, right? It was just hilariously horrible, and I understood then why they do that. And I was like, IBM, why can't we have a point system? I should get points awarded to me for every smart question I, re I ask in a PMR. So that when I call, I don't have to wait a week to get somebody on the phone to talk to me. Here's a quick question. What's a PMR? I don't know what that is. It's a problem, problem management. Something. I have no idea. Problem management. It's like opening a ticket, I guess. Yeah, it's a thing okay. that you do when you have a problem with your stuff. <laughs> well, so basically, IBM missed, missed the boat on, on becoming Stack Overflow. Yeah, well, so, and what that happens is you, know, you, you open a PMR, and then it routes to somebody. And unless like, your entire front end is down, it routes to people who 
can barely read uh, the words off the screen, right? Uh, in on the screen in front of them, and and they run, they make you do a whole bunch of stupid things. It's a lot like calling tech support, uh, and you're like, dude, I did all that two weeks ago. No, well, but so a developer to talk to. But that's a really good point because why? There, there's an industry lesson here, I think, right? Why do companies do that? Well, IBM might. Well, IBM. Every time they couldn't button their shirt. Well, IBM might be a little different, but if you think about smaller organizations that are trying to, you know, get off the ground and they have a tech support, you know, a customer support area, that is a cost center, and they track that stuff, especially if you kind of lean startup stuff and you track the metrics against that. And so a lot of times they're optimizing either for cost or for the eight problems they know that they get all the time, right? So they train people on follow the flow chart. But part of that, and, and, and this is the difference between pure customer support and then actually supporting developers, is that why do they do that? Well, they do that because they do get a lot of people who, my, my stuff's broken, right? And, and so those uh, support organizations for developers are optimized around dealing with my stuff's broken. And Yusuf, you kind of mentioned, I, I think I might have cut you off, but you made a really good point. They missed the boat on Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow has its sort of uh, a different set of issues, but this whole sort of point system about raising better answers and you're going to get a better response actually if you know how to ask a question is a really astute point, I think. You're right. Yeah. Never thought to compare it to Stack Overflow, but it's, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, so let me ask this. So we've been talking about sort of asking questions and uh, how to ask questions. I actually will... feel a little bad. I feel like we've ranted a little bit about question askers, and that was really... <laughs> What I wanted to do with this talk, but I mean, it does kind of turn into that sometimes. Well, it is one of those things where I think it is judgment of, like I said, that quote where it's like, we're going to call you a loser or call you stupid. All of that aside, set that aside. If you really look at what do I want as a question asker? I want my question asked, right? Any way that I could, you know, make that be an easier process for me, it's really a question of what do you want as a question well, and asker? Let me, just, let me just say, too, that I have worked with some truly smart capable, brilliant people who are super at figuring out what is going on with their stuff, what isn't working, and sometimes I'll even have folks come to me and say, hey, my thing isn't working, I did these eight things, none of them worked, I think this is probably the problem that I don't actually know how to fix it, or I don't have the, the rights or the permissions to fix it, can you give me a hand? And right. I, there are several people like that that I have worked with, and so I just wanted to throw that out there, because not, not everybody is looking to have somebody else solve their problem. Yeah, well, and even in the support roles I've been in, like if you come to me and you say, hey, this thing is broken and I tried these three things because I, I thought it might be that, I've had the thought process in my head that's like, no, you're, you're totally wrong. I know what's going on, but you at least tried those three things. And let me, you know, because maybe maybe there's some infrastructure thing that's down that they don't know about, and he, yeah. they're the, per, the the fifth now person that's point. asked me. And so, but but the fact that they tried something else and they didn't just come to my desk and be uh, my thing's broken makes me like yeah. let me tell you about what's actually going on if you're interested. And a lot of times those are actually people that are interested, like because they want to learn a little more about as Yusuf was saying, what's in the stack? What is actually broken in the stack, right? And those people are, and I can't understate this. Those people are awesome because they're going to go back to their smaller team of 10 developers that they're working with. And for the developers on that team that want to learn that stuff, they're going to disseminate that information yes. for you. It's great. So I, I actually try to nurture those people's questions, even if they're totally on the wrong path, because they are asking them in the right way and they're going to be the ambassador for the answer. But I mean, that, that's part of DevOps though, right? I mean, yeah. That's, you know, so I think that's actually a good segue for the other heart of this is how not to be a jerk when somebody asks you a yeah. question. Yeah. And one of the things that I have had to learn to do, and I think a lot of us do this, and I've worked with many people who have, and I still don't, I, I often work with people who have this problem, and that is when somebody comes to ask you a question, shut the f*** up until they finish asking the question. Don't just jump right in there and say, oh, yeah. oh, this is your problem. You need to do this. And then they're like, no, that's actually not it. I've, I've done some research, and it's not actually my problem at this point. I make that mistake that all the time. So, yeah. And I had, that is very difficult to do, and you just need to learn to be quiet and let people talk. And sometimes you already know the answer, but a lot of times I find out after looking stupid, you don't. So I think that is like in-person work, like office work and stuff, that is absolutely one of the best things that you can do to foster a good relationship 
is to let other people talk and tell you their problems and then jump in once they're done because I think as a when I try we have issues with that well, so I, you actually uh, brought this up before, too. I mean, that can also foster people, you know, if you have someone that comes and talks through the problem, I've had that, too, where someone that comes to you and they're like, you know, I did this and I did this and I think this is broken and they all they needed was that walk across the office to your desk yeah, and, and saying and verbalizing the problem and then they're like, oh, I didn't try that. Oh, you know, you know, I make this this mistake you brought up all the time, where I'm like, I want to jump in and say no, no, and and it's something. It's a growing edge for me, where it's like, no, just shut up, let them say say, ask their question before you you jump on it. Um, yeah, it, that's that's a hard skill to learn. Uh, because we're all, we all want to be smart, right? We want to, and we want to help, right? And right. I have this image of we're all we're all the little kids in our desks, like with our hands raised. You know, call me, call me, teacher. We you are. know, kind of we're thing. We're like a yeah. tribe full of nerds, and we all think we know the answer, but sometimes it, it pays to be quiet. Yeah. Well, so I, I mentioned this earlier. Kind of um, one thing that the more interactions I have on the the internet, I realized this probably a couple of years ago. That and, and I find this a little surprising, especially for engineers, but maybe I shouldn't. That there is a real lack of distinction about a concept that lawyers use all the time that actually turns out to be very useful. And we were talking earlier uh, when we started talking about this topic about people come into a, a forum and they say, how do I do X? And, and they're doing all the, you know, they, they say, I tried these five things and I'm using this version of this and this and this. And they, they ask a really good question and someone says, well, why the hell are you doing that? That's just totally wrong, right? And we've all run into that problem. Sure. Lawyers make a distinction between a finding of fact and a finding of judgment. And the distinction is, in a very simple case, if you have somebody that steals a loaf of bread, the finding of fact part of the trial or the investigation is, did they actually steal the loaf of bread? What evidence do you weigh? Do you have videotape? Do you have eyewitness testimony? That kind of stuff. And the point is establishing the facts. Then there's the finding of judgment, which is, okay, well, if they stole the loaf of bread, where they're mitigating circumstances, they're trying to feed their family, like, you know, then it becomes a squishier conversation about what are we trying to incentivize from a social perspective and all those kind of other stuff. And that can be a very, very interesting conversation too. But the point is those are separate things. And I think a lot of time on the internet or even in person with engineers, someone comes with a question of fact. They are asking, this does not work. How do I do this? They aren't interested in the finding of judgment about what they're doing. And quite frankly, a lot of times, I think as engineers, we often have a blind spot about they have different requirements and they have a different context and environment in which they're working. And so a lot of times, you see this all the time on the internet, people jump right over the finding of fact discussion to the finding of judgment. And that's an, this example of coming into a room and saying, how do I do X? They're asking a factual question. It has a right or wrong answer to it and it's it's a discussion of the facts but people jump over that to the why would you do that that's stupid and that's a judgment discussion and i i found that actually calling out that those are two different things and then trying to focus people on okay i get that that we could have a discussion about the judgment of the situation or the merits of, of the judgment of the situation but let's actually talk about the facts that can actually be helpful to getting over that hurdle do you use those actual words so um, finding of fact and finding of judgment are, uh, or finding of law is sometimes what they call it, in the, is, is very legalese. And uh, I actually am afraid I might have put some of our listeners to sleep by going through that whole exercise. I don't always. It, it kind of depends on the audience. You know, if it's somebody who knows me and knows the way that my kind of pattern to speech and how I talk about things, I will kind of trot out the example and then try to do that. But sometimes if it's like in a meeting, I'll just be a little more covert about it and be like, okay, instead of talking about the merits of the engineering solution, let's just talk about kind of possible engineering solutions to make that distinction. Uh, and I found it really just helps to bucket those questions. What are we actually talking about right now? Is well, it and I tried that too. I popped into a, an IRC channel a couple weeks ago now, I think, uh, to ask a question about I just wanted to make sure I covered all my bases because I couldn't figure out how to do something and I didn't think it was possible to do it with the thing that I had to use. And somebody was like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You should just totally go redo everything like this. And I was like, dude, I'm not in charge of that, right? They hired me to write the automation and not care about the implementation. The implementation works. This wasn't me. I can't care about this right now and I'm not going to waste my, my capital arguing with them over something that works that doesn't concern me. 
this wasn't this wasn't me, was it? Because I think this happened last no, week. No, no, no. This was update, me. and I was like, "Why are you doing that?" <laughs> no, I popped into InfraTalk, and I was just looking for something uh, to to do, and for I was just looking to see if anybody knew any more about this because it was a it was a networking thing, and I'm I'm light on networking, so. Yeah. And, and the guy couldn't stop arguing with me, and I was like, dude, I get that this is a bad solution, right? I'm not a fan either, but the world is the way the world is at this moment in time. And well, I think, charge. you know, I think from a, you know, we kind of started this talk about from a people skills perspective, and a lot of times it's hard to talk about this because what it boils down to is what are your growing edges as a person, uh, and we all have them, right? And being able to detect when you're speaking to speak but you're not actually saying anything that needs to be heard uh, is, again, a growing edge for me. I've, I've worked a lot on it. And it sounds like this is an example of that, where if you keep saying over and over again, well, that's a stupid way to do it, and the other person doesn't want to hear that for whatever reason. Either they don't want to hear it, or they know that, but they can't fix it. doesn't matter. Like, it's on your shoulders to go, okay... They, they have heard the thing where I've said it is stupid three times, let it go. And, and I think we've all been in that environment where sometimes that's really hard to do, and sometimes people just aren't very good at it. And my, well, so some, I went in there with that expectation, actually, that I was going to ask the question, nobody was going to have anything useful for me, somebody was going to tell me it was stupid, and I was going to go away with exactly what I have when I went in. But I thought I would at least try, because I was trying to cover everything and not have to rewrite something from scratch, uh, yeah. some chef code from scratch to deal with my problem. So... I also honestly don't pop into IRC to ask a question unless it's a last resort because I know that I'm constantly having to deal with stuff like that, especially because I work for enterprise customers often, and they're like the poster children for you shouldn't be doing it this way, right? Right. right. So I, I think on that point, I mean, there, there, there should or there is definitely an etiquette or, or, uh, or there should be an etiquette of, of how to answer um, questions. I mean, I think if somebody's asking you a specific question and you're having to uh, resort to any type of profanity, in my opinion, you probably should not be answering the question. Or, you know, if you're just getting frustrated because um, you're busy and you have stuff to do, either tell them that, hey, can you come back later? I'm in the middle of something. Uh, you or just somebody been swearing at you? No, I'm just, I mean, in general, I just, I mean, you know, I, I just think that, you know, that, especially for those who are kind of more, you know, I know we mentioned uh, social, what was it, loafers or more junior and don't have you know really strong problem solving skills. It it can be easy to sort of lash out at them, but I think that depending on how you're answering the question and what the context of the of you know whether this is more of an open source project or kind of a, a professional um, environment, there's an opportunity to be able to say, okay, well, look, either I'm not going to ask this question because you know I don't have time for you right now, or just accept that as both of you said, this particular individual is in a specific environment and they don't want to hear judgment they just want to they want to know okay i'm in this state state a how do i get to state b well no, i don't I mean, care about anything else well you know that's a good so point because what are we talking about are we talking about forums or are we talking about the workplace because this sounds more like another workplace interaction i, I mean both though because i think on a forum uh, it depends i mean if this is on like for example on github like on github issues um, I recently submitted an enhancement for a, a Java framework, and the developer responded back, well, how would you do this? And, yeah, it would have been easy for me to say, you know, this guy is an idiot, or it's pretty obvious how you should do this. But, again, I, I think regardless of the, the medium or the, the location, having that level of etiquette is, you know, I think it's definitely going to make for a better sort of experience overall. Well, so you were talking about cussing, and certainly that's never appropriate, but... Yeah, yeah except in the podcast, because then we can have leaks. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, so the, the thing is, is that if you look at the, the workplace example, and then the example from the quote that I read from, that's a very much an open source focused document, calling someone a loser, calling someone stupid, calling someone uh, someone's ideas stupid, kind of is in some sense the same as cussing in that it's not actually contributing to solving the problem, and there's no reason you really need to say that. And it's mean. With, with a caveat that I actually have a question for, for you guys, because I'm curious which, what you think about this. But in the example, though, that Yusuf, Yusuf was giving about the workplace, right, that's a great example where there oftentimes has been, oh, well, we're doing it this stupid way because of that other team. 
and there again, it's almost throwing the blame over the wall, kind of like you might throw code over the wall. You don't um, want to do that either. Right. And so, you know, that's an example where it's not, people aren't saying, f*** this and f*** that, but they may be doing this sort of lower key finger pointing that I think is just as insidious and useless in terms of actually driving the solution. We were talking earlier uh, just about ways to help with this and making assumptions negatively or positively about the person asking the question as opposed to the issues is sometimes something you know that we all do and again you know kind of the snarky comments that we were just talking about can be sort of problematic. The one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, because I've run into this, there's sometimes there's the issue of the bozo bit, and I'll see if I can find it. And if we can, I can, I'll link to it in the show notes. There was a great blog post a while ago that I read that was a couple of years, maybe a year ago, that was like the danger of flipping the bozo bit. If you're not familiar with the bozo bit, it's the concept that if you have enough interactions with a particular individual, you finally go, this person is just not competent in their role, or they're not competent, period, or however you kind of tell yourself that, and you flip the bit. They are a bozo, right? And this post talked about why that turns out to actually be problematic. And full disclosure, I think I, I, I think we've all done that, but I've certainly in environments been like, oh, bozo bit got flipped. And I've actually had the bozo bit flipped on me, where people are like, oh, that person's all stupid. So, yeah. yeah. And so I guess my question is, there have been situations where somebody comes to me and they're like, this is the problem. And it is a finding of fact question. It is like, how do I do X and get? And you give them an answer. And they're like, no, that's not right. And and there's like, how do you say, I'm sorry, but you are totally and utterly wrong. And I that's all I have to say on the matter. And if I'm not going to convince you is, how do you guys deal with that? I disengage because I'd be like, okay, I don't have to win those arguments. And that's really where you have to be. For me, it depends. I mean, if somebody's asking a question about version control, I'll say, okay, show go ahead, do it. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, sometimes, too, I've had it where somebody will say, hey, to use another example, like the OpenStack, whatever is down. And it turns out that it's something else. And a lot of times, I, you know, a coworker of mine used to say, how did he put it? It was something like, uh, he would say it with a very kind of jovial look on his face to not be threatening, but he would just be, I don't believe you. Show me. Kind of like you were saying, Yusuf, and I and I think that can be, you know, if you do it right, a good way to kind of diffuse that situation. But I've that, done could... that I've been like, are you sure? <laughs> are you <laughs> really, 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 really sure? But I've had that done to me too, and that's you know that's that's one of the consequences of, of working in in stable infrastructures. And on the other hand, we've had folks I've I've seen where folks partner teams will do something to cause instability and then people who don't have any visibility into the infrastructure will be like, you know, the chicken little, the whole infrastructure was down, blah, 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 and it would have been really easy for, like, say, someone to blame the team that did the work that actually caused the problem. But I actually watched a teammate of mine, like, take it and just not not even pass that on because it didn't matter, right? Well, that's, that is a very zen skill and it sounds like in this you know, I was impressed I was really impressed because yeah. especially if you if you have to put up with a lot of uh, crankiness about unstable infrastructure to be able to then not actually point the finger at who caused it when it wasn't us um, right I thought it was super well a lot of times too it's coming back to the topic of asking questions sometimes you see people sort of using questions as a methodology to actually point the finger and so sometimes it's it's also hard too because you you know you can see people asking pointed questions in very sort of specific ways to actually get, get make a point that they don't want to actually have to make up front and that's a double edged sword sometimes you know i i've been in situations where the best way to get someone to come to the conclusion that you that you have come to is to have them walk through that by asking them questions. And then sometimes people are just trying to be jerks and they're trying, well, and they're, they're, this often comes up in meeting situations, right? Where they're trying to make a point with a bunch of people. So they play this game where it's like, let's ask a bunch of questions. You know, one of the last things I want to talk about, we we didn't talk about it, but I think it's really good for answering questions was this kind of uh, distinction between what is your role as the, person answering the question. Are you supposed to give them an answer? Are you supposed to just give them the answer? Like, here's here's the answer. Or are you supposed to be coaching them? And this often comes up, like, Yusuf, you're saying with maybe more junior engineers that you might have hired recently, 
and you actually, they're, they're great engineers, but they just don't have a lot of experience. So you actually want to have them sort of, quote unquote, show their work or whatever. Do you guys have any sort of thoughts or hints on that and, and how also to resolve that when you're, because I run in the, into this a lot of times too, where it's like, well, am I just supposed to give this person the concrete answer or am I supposed to help them figure it out on their own? Well, if it's somebody in my own skill areas, right? So we're talking about mentoring then as opposed to helping somebody who is a, a, a client or a service receiver. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will generally give them a nudge and not give them the answer. And a lot of times peers prefer that. I do. Um, when I'm having trouble or if I want to try and help with debugging something and I don't know where to start, I'll be like, where should I look? Don't tell me the answer. And actually one of the biggest problems that I think we all also have as a, as a tribe is that once you bring up a, this thing is not working the way it should, all of a sudden the entire team is, is derailed, right? Because we all want to look at it. Oh, that, so, so that's a different problem. But yes, <laughs> I've, I've, I've worked in environments there where it's like nobody has... The curse no, of the open space, right? No, I mean, I love open right. space working, but that is the curse right there of the open space. All of a sudden, eight people are not working on their own stuff. They're all listening to the guy standing at the end of the table with the problem. Right. And and that's actually, I've seen that enough that I want to say that's actually a cultural anti-pattern because really what you're effectively saying, I, I think there are two cases of it. The cynic in me says that that is actually an active participation of I don't trust my coworkers and I need to make sure my opinion about this thing is heard because so-and-so is not going to give them the right answer. But the flip side of it too is sometimes people are, and I've had this where it, there's no malicious uh, intent. It's just, I'm kind of bored, and this is a interesting... A, a friend of mine used to say, engineers, he would talk about cr uh, solving crossword puzzles, and that, what he meant by that was that sometimes engineers just want to solve a puzzle. So, so yeah, uh, It's an obsessive-compulsive thing. I think we all have just a little bit of that, and right. listening to somebody ask a question about stuff, it's just it's compulsive, and I actually, at this last place, where I did sit in an open space like that, had to... I actively had to block out things that I... Even when I thought that I was the the most knowledgeable person on me, whatever it was, I was like, you know what? They're not asking me, and my coworker knows just as much as I do about this stuff. I'm not listening. But unfortunately, a lot of that was also me. I wasn't actually getting a lot of work done because I was actively having to say to myself, "Not listening, not right, listening, right. not listening." Well, and by and I have seen teams that weren't gelling together. I've actually been a member of teams that weren't gelling well together, and that event turned into. A pissing match about which engineer knew more about Chef or knew more about Linux or knew more about Chef on Linux. All of these things. And so basically like three or four times a day, the entire team would get derailed. And it got to the point where that you're kind of being dysfunctional as a team in front of someone else. So that's bad. We need to write this down as a topic because I think trust is a huge thing, yeah. especially in, in inside a team. So we should talk about this for yeah. like so let me ask one other question because I've run into this about this this specific topic. So we were talking about uh, the whole: Do you give someone the answer? Or do you sort of lead them down the the right road to find the answer on their own? I've been in the situation where I've done that, and people have been very pissed by that. They they, they come they, they see it as well. You're not helping me. You're not being a team player. You're not whatever. And a lot of times it's like, listen, if I were to be frank with you, this is something you should know in your job function. And so me giving you the answer and letting you effectively copy off my homework doesn't help you because then you're not really learning how to think about whatever the issue is and apply it to other situations. You're just copying off someone's homework. Well, um, and it doesn't serve the organization. So my, I guess my question is, how do you guys deal with that when someone is visibly frustrated in your face, I just want the answer so I can do my job, and it's like, I'm sorry. I don't know how you got this far in, in your career not knowing X, Y, Z. This is like one on one level stuff. And well, I think I think you can just sit them down and just say, "Look, I mean, here's here's the situation. I can give you the answer, but in the interest of developing your career, you're probably going to want to learn about this." Well, so I think you have to be able to gauge the situation too. So one, if this person is off on a giant yak shave and not getting their actual work done, that's a problem. Two, if they're actually having a serious issue, that's also a problem, and maybe you need to do some remedial stuff as well. So. I have never been in that situation where somebody was pissed off at me for not telling them the answer. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Honestly, I really haven't. But generally, I can say things like check the X or check the Y, and that's close enough for most people that I've worked with. Oh, so, yeah, or they're a client, certainly. You know, they're taking client. They're, 
I'm servicing them, right? So they're a client of my team services. And in that case, I'm not going to give them a nudge. I'm going to figure out what their problem is and then possibly think in my head, why are they so incapable? But so that, that's really interesting. And Yusuf, I actually I, I want to hear what you want to say about this, but I wanted to interject real quick. You were talking about client services because I've had it be the other way where I've actually been trying to work with someone about really these are kind of like configuration management concepts or something that you, you should have had experience with somewhere else. So, so I'm not going to just give you the answer. Let's try to work together. And from a management perspective, I, I was like, why, why aren't you just giving so-and-so the answers? And it's like, well, I, I, I thought you wanted me to help sort of whatever. And so there's this kind of disconnect between my assessment of you should know this versus their assessment of, well, no, this person should just kind of do what they're told or whatever, right? It, and it's kind of weird. It's even a weird situation. I've never had to be in that situation where I've had to actually, like, spoon feed anything to anyone. Uh, Yusuf, you said you had. Yeah, I have. So I, I think, in, you know, in my, in my situation or situations that I've come across in the past, you know, generally the individuals are kind of, you know, they're in a hurry. They want to get their job done, and they get really, as well as you said, irritated that, okay, you're not getting any answer. No, you're making me think. I don't want to think. Right, exactly. So I, I think, you know, there's a couple strategies that you can take. I mean, you can definitely get management involved. I think depending on the situation, you, you know, in some, in some cases you... You probably want to do lightly hint to management that yeah, that this is this is something that's that's going on, and then offer to to sit down with this particular individual and say, okay, what is it about this particular thing that's that's frustrating you? I understand that you have goals. I understand that you want to get this thing done, but the next time you come across this problem, do you want to confidently be able to to take apart this problem, or do you want to come running to me, or you know, what if I'm on PTO, or what if I get hit by a bus and <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not available. So the teacher is not available because they got hit by the school bus. Right. It's kind of like the old, uh, I don't know, adage or parable. You know, give a person a fish, and you can feed them for a day, and or you teach them how to fish, they can feed themselves practically forever. So yeah. I think most people, unless they have serious attitude problems, are, you know, they'll understand that. They'll, they'll get that. Okay, you know, I can't always spoon feed you, and in some cases, you know, giving them a quick Nudge, and I've I've had plenty of situations like this where I'm looking at somebody's shell scripts or code or whatever, and they say this thing doesn't work, and it's a simple thing like I don't know they flip the loop control variable or whatever, and you say, well, I know what it is, but I'm not going to tell you because you need to go through and figure it out. But it's somewhere between lines, you know, 50 and 80, kind of narrow it down for them. And just, well, that's interesting because that's pair programming was all about that, right? How do you solve that problem? Well, and I think, again, you have to distinguish between situations where one is it's a peer or somebody who's doing their actual job and doesn't have a ready answer, and two, it's someone consuming your team services and can't figure out something that is technically not part of their job. That's a good, actually a really good distinction to make. Yeah, that's a good point. Because if you say, well, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that, they're going to give you a big fuck you, and they can. Right, right. Right, and that's actually bordering on, you know, as a as a services team, whether you're servicing a client or servicing, uh, what, yeah, yeah, whether you're servicing a client or servicing, you know, an engineering team, that's where you're actually failing in that sort of role to, to be service-oriented. Well, you know, I, I'd love to open this uh, discussion up for listeners. What, what do you guys and gals think, uh, you know, what experiences have you had with either being asked questions that you're like, I don't know what the, I can't believe I just got to ask that, or asking questions that you thought were reasonable and people are like telling you you're stupid. Uh, what, what stories and what advice do you have? Uh, what are your own strategies for doing this? And how do you prepare your questions when you trudge into the IRC forum to try to mitigate this sort of stuff? We'd love to hear about those stories. And uh, you can tweet at them at, at Ship Show Podcast or uh, crew at theshipshow.com and, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely discuss them. We'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. Right, welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to do uh, another DevOps Dear Abby. We put out the call last week. We've got a, a couple of really good ones. We also got a couple via email, so keep sending them to us via email. We, we, we read them if they're longer. Um, we actually got a really thoughtful DevOps Dear Abby um, that we kind of discussed via email. But tonight, first question.
question comes from Wilkin Rivera. He asks, I am looking for some solid resources, books, and docs on Chef Solo. Do you have any good suggestions? Uh, this is, uh, Sasha, this sounds like a question for you. I don't know really what there is out there on Chef Solo specifically, but the Chef Doc site is doing pretty well. It's docs.opscom.com, I think. And uh, there's a Learn Chef site now, too, which is, um, let me just look at the website here real quick. I'm pretty sure it's learnchef.opscom.com, but I'll ask my web browser. We'll, we'll link to it in the show yeah. notes, certainly. Yeah, Are so there... there's that. People have done some writing about it and stuff, and... Interestingly, depending on how new you are, there are a lot of tools that make use of Chef Solo. So not necessarily teaching you how to use it yourself, but there are a lot of tools that use it, like Test Kitchen uses it, a couple of other tools use it for um, testing purposes and things like that. Plus there are a lot of plugins that are designed to make Chef Solo work all, uh, a little bit more like Chef Server. So the big difference is that Chef Solo doesn't have the server, uh, the mothership, basically, to, to refer to, right? So there's no... Um, there's no way to search the Chef server for other things. There's no uh, no way to store node data, so you you can't modify your node data really and and then use it. So there are some plugins, some things that are you can use with Chef Solo that will make that a little easier to do, like to allow you to use data bags and things, which are also not a native feature. So you should check out the Chef website really, and then do some googling. Okay. Uh, Yusuf. Um, I'm gonna have to defer to uh, Sasha's answer because yeah. All right. Well, and and uh, uh, Sasha is definitely, I think, our chef expert, our resident chef expert. The one thing I would point you at, uh, well, with well, Seth is not here, right? So he knows stuff too, but he's yeah, yeah, he's off in Europe or something. But uh, yeah, I would point you at um, uh, actually, question for you, Sasha. Episode seven, when we were talking about bootstrapping developer environments, that was all Chef Solo, right? That's true. We bootstrapped it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So with Chef so, Solo. Yeah, so so go. You can uh, check out episode seven. We actually talked about it a little more there. But yeah, uh, and then the other thing is, is uh, I actually met Wilkin at the Perforce conference. The Chef conference is coming up. I'm sure that you could learn a lot about Chef Solo by going to the Chef conference. So that's also another, always an avenue to to investigate. Uh, our next DevOps dear Abby comes from Jude. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce this name, Nagarney. Uh, and you can yell at me on Twitter if I got the name wrong. And he asks, are there any DevOps lessons to be learned from Project Orca besides redirect your HTTP request to HTTPS? Uh, and for those that don't remember, we actually talked about Project Orca in episode 10. This was the Romney campaign's get out the vote tool that was sort of disastrous. Uh, it, it failed in a lot of ways. And the HTTP to HTTPS redirect thing, the issue was that if you went to whatever the website was, it wouldn't redirect. Uh, HTTP just was a blank page. It didn't redirect to HTTPS. And since most people don't actually go to HTTPS and browsers don't actually autofill in HTTPS, most people thought the website was down. So that's the little history on Project Orca. Sasha, what do you think? Uh, I think that the biggest lesson to be learned from that was to look at the Obama campaign, which did things differently with their products. And uh, they also learned from their year before, their pre previous campaign, which was, I think they had some real issues. They shortened the feedback loop on this campaign on, on the technical team, where they got out minimum viable product, and then they solicited immediate feedback from the volunteers and the people on the streets who were using them, and then they, they fed that back into their development system and team and things, and that was a big win for them. Yusuf? Uh, I'm probably going to have to just add on to what Sasha said, you know, just uh, keep it lean. Uh, get a get a minimal uh, viable product out there, and uh, you know, get get something that works in, into people's hands. Yeah, you know. I I was actually reviewing, when you had mentioned Jude Project Orca, when you asked about it, I, I actually had to go look at Google it uh, to make sure I was thinking about the right thing. And uh, when I was looking at some of the Business Insider and Ars Technica articles that were you know reviewing it, I had kind of a flashback to the Phoenix Project in the way that they talked about it, and that it was a very big lumbering, like, we hired a consulting firm to do it, and the feedback loop was like, you know, it reminded me of the Phoenix Project, uh, and then of course, predictably in the book, and then and the, the, as as we experienced it, it sort of failed. I think honestly, it's interesting. Nobody really. What were the Ars Technica article? Actually, the headline that I was reading was which consultants built Romney's Project Orca? None of them. Nobody wants to really postmortem what actually went wrong, and I think it would be a very interesting. Uh, 
case to postmortem because I think you're going to find a lot of the common DevOps things that we talk about, Sasha was saying, short feedback loops and quick cycles and being able to pivot quickly based on data from users. I mean, those are all, all very important lessons. And it's, it's, it's not surprising, but it's sort of sad that we'll not be able to, to get some kind of concrete takeaways from Project Orca. But I think clearly we always talk about culture. It was sort of two very similar products with the Obama campaign and the Romney campaign. Like the, the products they were building were to do the same things. But it's very clear the cultures were very different. And it's very easy to see even without all the internal data about what actually happened just the end result, it's very clear. Like, So if you want a great example of like they were building the same thing and the outcomes were very different. Uh, so if you Google, actually, I think The Atlantic did a very in-depth comparative article, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember I remember that one. And so we'll try to find that and link it in the show notes. But, uh, but yeah, I just think it, you were asking, are there any DevOps lessons to be learned? It's like kind of all the DevOps lessons there are to learn or uh, all of the standard ones are kind of embodied in, in the way Project Oracle works. So. Right. All right, well, uh, you know, if, if you have uh, questions for us, we'll, we'll tweet the hashtag again. There's also a, a web page now that kind of, for people that aren't sure where the Dear Abby, what that's about, I actually wrote up a little page you can see at the shipshow.com slash DevOps Dear Abby, one word, and all lowercase, and it describes kind of what what, where the, the history of the name came from and all that kind of stuff and uh, we'll do this, this segment again soon also uh, as I mentioned we, ChefConf is coming up it's on the events calendar uh, you can always take a look at that shipshow.com slash events uh, if you're looking for uh, conferences that are going on DevOps days dates and places uh, all that stuff is up there uh, and of course if you ever uh, need to tweet us we're ShipShow Podcast on Twitter and crew at the shipshow.com will get emailed to all of us so, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha Bates signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And have a good couple of weeks. Bye.